the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Ah, but like a good Ginsu knife commercial, he slices, he dices, and so much more. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of Lifeline for the 17th day of January. Trust you're having a great week so far. Made it halfway through the week. That certainly is always good news, and we're going to get you through the entirety of your commute tonight. Got great conversation, some great insights. We got Michael Bennett hanging out in the KFAX Traffic Center, so we got traffic updates for you every 10 minutes. And uh, with all that, by the end of the proceedings, uh, a good time should be had by all. At least that's our hope and our plan. Coming up a little bit later on, we're going to talk about this growing laundry list, the Me Too movement, and What's happening here? The significant cultural implosion of this issue of revelations concerning sexual impropriety, sexual harassment, sexual abuse, on and on the list goes. How do women deal with all of this? Best-selling author Don Scott Damon will join us on the program as we talk about the culture of sexual harassment in America Day. That's coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. If you haven't been paying attention, you should be. The Center for Disease Control now saying that it appears a lot more folks are coming down with the flu this season than had been previously anticipated. The CDC updating healthcare professionals on the current flu season. So far, it's killed 20 infants and hundreds of adults. But yet the CDC says it's too early to tell if the season is going to be worse than usual. The health agency says the virus that's circulating is one that's caused more illnesses and put the biggest number of people in the hospital over the last 10 to 15 years. So what do you do? Oftentimes we hear people say, well, I hear they talk about the flu shot, but I might get the flu if I receive the flu shot. What are the best practices and how can you be best prepared to deal with this, considering the fact that this is not only potentially a um, very bothersome uh, at least in the lighter forms, temporarily disabilitating disease that can last for a week or two, illness that last week or two, and in some cases can lead to premature death. Joining us is Dr. Pat Salber, board-certified MD, San Francisco-based emergency room internist, and the founder and editor-in-chief of The Doctor Weighs In. And Dr. Salber, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. That's my pleasure. You know, it seems like every season we talk about flu season, we talk about the need for people to get shots, particularly uh, the more vulnerable within society. And typically you always hear folks that say, oh, I don't need the flu shot. I haven't been sick in years. Or, well, I hear rumors that if you get the flu shot, you'll get the flu. And people steer away from that. Is that necessarily, though, the truth? And if not, where does this false information come from? Well, first of all, it's not true. Those are both myths around the flu shot. And it gets perpetuated. I, I was in getting my hair cut, and the woman who was cutting my hair said, oh, I don't need to get the flu shot. I take echinacea. <laughs> uh, doesn't work that way. The flu is a virus, and uh, the 
flu shot does not cause the flu. That's been well studied, but it does prevent the flu. The, prob- the problem with flu is the circulating strains, and there's usually more than one, change every year. That's why you have to get a flu shot every single year. And some years the shots are more effective than others. They're never 100% effective at preventing you from getting the flu. So if you get the shot and you get the flu later, it's probably because you didn't, you know, the the, uh, vaccine wasn't effective enough to prevent you from getting it. But it wasn't caused by the shot. It's just that the shot didn't prevent it. And don't they essentially have to almost predict what the flu season is going to be, uh, uh, what strains are going to be active? So essentially they're, they're preparing the vaccine well in advance of when it's actually going to be put to use. So they're, they're almost having to anticipate, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. got it right. Uh, and they're continually, there's actually global monitoring of the strains that are going around. Now, we did have a hint that this year was going to be bad because the flu um, season in Australia occurs in our summer, their winter. And it was a particularly bad flu season in Australia. So it really was a hint that it could be worse than usual here as well. What is it about uh, the they, flu that, that, that tends to be so seasonal? I mean, uh, for example, we weren't talking much about this uh, in the fall of last year, but now here we are full on, the dead of winter, holidays are past us, and we have major concerns about the spread of flu. Why is that? Is that because we're indoors more? Yeah, it's, not, it's, not, it's because we're closer together more, and that's in part because we're indoors, right, because it's spread by... Uh, by coughing or by you, you cough and you cover your mouth and you get the virus on your hands and you shake hands. So, um, it, so there are some of these infectious diseases that are, are, are just more common um, in the winter than they are in the summer. Now, Doctor, for any of us that have had the flu in the past, as I mentioned in my opening comments, it, it can be a pain, it can be a temporarily de- debilitating, but it's not necessarily the end of the world. But then I read stories like this one recently here in San Jose, the 40-year-old mother of three um, who started to feel ill around New Year's, um, actually went into the hospital, was eventually sent home, returned three days later, was then diagnosed with pneumonia, placed on a ventilator, and she succumbed to the flu just two days later. More still, a young man at the age of 21, a college athlete, active, in good health. He contracted the flu around Christmas time, went back to visit his parents in Pennsylvania, didn't look very good, went into an urgent care center three days later, died from organ failure due to septic shock related to the flu. Wow. Right, and this is horrible. Um, it was actually a 12-year-old here in California also who died, although she may have had a bacterial infection. But I think one thing that uh, a lot of people don't know is that the flu virus itself can cause sepsis, which is an inflammatory response, a widespread, severe inflammatory response to the infection. And it usually occurs in the, in the setting of bacterial infections, but flu can do it too. And that's what happened to the woman who I believe was a marathon runner um, who died so quickly after she got the flu and the young man who was a, a weightlifter. Um, usual, in usual years, what we would tell you is the people most at risk of, of being hospitalized or, or dying from the flu are older folks or very young kids kids younger than five. 
But in this year, we're actually seeing, you know, a number of these stories of young, otherwise healthy people who are having either getting pneumonias and getting really sick from that or developing sepsis. So, so is it fair to, to, to make this following statement? Correct me if I'm inaccurate with this. Uh, there are folks that think somehow when doctors warn about flu season and washing your hands frequently and getting the flu shot and things of this sort, that it's sort of a, sort of a you know, public interest that like you would say, hey, be careful not to you know, cover your mouth when you sneeze because nobody wants to get a cold. You're not just simply trying to prevent people from having an illness that keeps them out of work for two or three days or a week. I mean, there's literally an aspect of this to which doctors warning against flu season are literally trying to save lives. That's right. And by the way, when you get your flu shot, it may not be your life that gets saved. It may be your grandmother's that got saved or some other vulnerable person because you didn't get the flu shot, you got the flu, you go, you know, visit your grandmother, she gets the flu, and then she gets seriously ill or has a, a, you know, a fatal outcome. So I think people need to reframe how they're doing this. The flu shot is not just for you. The flu shot is for you and all the other people that you could potentially spread it to. Now, I, I'm curious, Dr. Salber, from your experience, what is it about the flu that can turn deadly? We, we made reference to septic shock, certainly issues of a, uh, a lung-related disease like pneumonia. Is that essentially what it, what it what ends up morphing into that takes lives? Yeah, I mean, people would, but besides this year where we're seeing so much, um, uh, you know, so many of these cases of, of sepsis, people would usually say, yeah, that uh, either you get really dehydrated, um, uh, you know, you just don't keep up with how many fluids you need to take at home when you're, you know, recovered, you know, uh, having the flu, and so you get dehydrated and you can end up having complications from that, or you end up getting a pneumonia, and it's the pneumonia that makes you really sick or, you know, puts you on a ventilator and, and uh, so forth. What's bad about this year is that we're seeing a certain strain of flu called H3N2 that we haven't seen in a while. So young kids haven't had a, an a episode of H3N2 flu, so they don't have antibodies. So they're getting it more than usual. And it's also a strain of virus that's known to be, you know, to cause more problems. There's more hospitalizations and more deaths from H3 and to them from some of the other strains. Now, in the past, when, um, you know, an individual would contract flu, it would be, well, you know, take plenty of Motrin, get a lot of bed rest, drink plenty of fluids, watch your temperature, things of this sort, ride it out in a week or so, you'll be okay. It's sounding now, though, with this particular strain of the H3N2 going around, does it make sense to seek medical help early on? And if so, when so? Well, see, this is a really interesting question because in an ordinary year, we would say, you know, people uh, who are young and healthy, they don't fall into the very young or very old category. Most time, it's, most doctors would just tell you to write it out, and you do write it out. I mean, you're uncomfortable, but, you know, you get over it and you don't end up like these stories that we've talked about. Um, in this year where we're seeing these bad outcomes, you, you probably don't necessarily need to go to the ER if you just feel ill like an ordinary flu, but you might want to call your doc and discuss your particular risks for getting sicker because there are some people like people who have chronic obstructive lung disease or people who have a history of asthma who statistically tend to do worse with the flu. 
and the anti-flu pills that you can take. You've probably heard of Tamiflu. Mm -hmm. um, this drug uh, needs to be taken within about 48 hours of, the de of developing the symptoms in order to be effective. Um, so you don't want to wait it out. And, and if I may, I want to say the other thing that I would um, say to your listeners is if you're getting sicker and sicker, that's an indication to at least call a health professional or go in and see someone. Because in all these cases that we talked about, the person was getting abnormally worse than you would see ordinarily in a flu. And we've all had flus and colds, and we kind of know what you know the usual is. If you're getting short of breath, if your um, fevers are, are, are getting higher and higher instead of starting to get better over time, if you're feeling much worse than you think you should from the flu, those are all reasons not to try and wait it out but to seek um, uh, professional help, whether it's on the phone via some kind of a video conference where the health professional can see what you look like or going to an e urgent care or an ER. The problem with the latter two is they are swamped right now. So there's really a, the, sort of a two-pronged approach at this. Obviously, uh, first and foremost is prevention. The old prevention is worth a, a pound of cure. Uh, the notion that uh, washing your hands frequently and keeping out of contact with people that appear to be sick, and if you're sick yourself, don't go to work, all of that good list. Is it too late to receive the flu shot? Absolutely not. Anybody who hasn't had it should... Uh, should go and get one. And the good news is nowadays you can get your flu shots almost anywhere. You know, most pharmacies will deliver emergent care uh, clinics will deliver them, and they're all usually um, uh, covered by uh, health insurance if you have it. So uh, prevention is always job number one. And then if you start to feel sick, uh, making sure that you are carefully monitoring uh, your symptoms and realizing that, as uh, Dr. Salber suggests, if within a couple of days you're getting increasingly worse and the fever is getting higher or more persistent, that means your body is really radically trying to f fight the invader. And so seeking medical attention can literally save your life. Last year I read, doctor, 650,000 people died from the flu. Oh, that must have been a, a, a global figure. But still, I mean, globally yeah, or, I mean, or nationally, that's it's, a shocker. It's usually about, about 35,000, 40,000 deaths in that, in that range in the, in the U.S. Uh, but you know that there was a pandemic. That's when you have a worldwide epidemic of flu in 1918 that killed millions and millions of people. That, it was um, called the Spanish flu. That, that list of casualties included my paternal great-grandfather. Oh, dear, I'm sorry to hear that. So, uh, yeah, aware of this topic at that level, and I think now that we've all had some time today with Dr. Pat Salber, we should all be aware that, again, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And uh, on the prevention side, go get your flu shot. Stop buying into this nonsense about it will give you the flu because that just simply isn't true. And if you get the flu subsequent to the flu shot, it simply means that the strain that you were exposed to wasn't included in the particular flu shot that you receive because they have to prepare it in anticipation. It's like saying, okay, what's going to be the cold of the month six months from now? Who knows? So 
You, now you've got your marching orders. Do it for the benefit of yourself, the benefit of your own family. Our thanks to Dr. Pat Salber for being with us, board-certified medical doctor, San Francisco-based emergency room internist. Lots of great information, by the way, on her web at the Doctor Ways In, like ways, like going on the scale, the Doctor Ways In. Dot com. And thanks for the insight, Dr. Pat Salber, for being with us today. All right, 520, let's get some insight on traffic. We have well, not a doctor of any sort, but he is a professor of traffic. Michael Bennett with the latest here on the Wednesday Ride Home. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you are someone who enjoys heartwarming stories that, once you walk away from them, give you a renewed sense of faith in humankind and just, quite frankly, make you feel good, boy, you're in for a real treat. Opening in theaters across the Bay Area January the 19th, a new film that I think you're going to love. It's called Forever My Girl, and joining us is the producer... Mickey Lindell. Mickey Lindell, of course, has got a long series of credits to his name of films that you probably know, including the 2016 hit Risen, an epic biblical story of the resurrection. He also produced The Gray, starring Liam Neeson, Jackie, starring Natalie Portman, and one of my favorites, The Zookeeper's Wife, that film based on the true story of a Christian couple who helped save thousands of lives during the German invasion of Poland. Now a brand new film out, and Mickey, I love this movie. I've had a chance to see the trailer. I can't wait till it opens up on the 19th, and I've got to ask you right out the gate, how did you find this story or this book? Thank you so much. I'm so glad uh, you love the movie. I love this movie, too. So it's so nice to um, hear someone else uh, feel the same way I, I do. It's, you know, this was a book um, by Heidi McLaughlin, and we read the book. And at the time, like you said, we were doing, I mean, probably five movies in a row from Risen to The Zookeeper's Wife, Jackie, Megan Levy, uh, Anthropoid. They were all historical, true life stories that everything like had to be perfect. And we were in Europe and all around shooting. And I think when we came back, we, myself and my team at LD Entertainment, we really wanted to do something light and fun and have music, and we wanted to have just a fun on the set. So we, we um, developed this and said, let's just go make this. And it was really ended up being one of the best times I've ever had on set because everybody could play and everybody had fun. And there was a little, you know, little girl, Abby, who plays Billy. And it was just like being at home and enjoying, you know, um, the movie set felt like a family. And it's a film that I think that a lot of folks will readily relate to, not only because the feeling that it's that it endears once you've le- left the movie, but going in, the, the sense of disappointment in life and, and hurt feelings and rejection, and then later on, forgiveness and restoration. It has many of those very, I guess we'd call almost strong biblical uh, lessons that are yep. woven throughout the story. Absolutely. I mean, there is the prodigal son, for sure, and uh, forgiveness and, um, you know, treating people nice. And there's so many themes in here that we really um, wanted to stay true to, because those stories are so great. Just in developing a character like Liam, you know, you really want in a movie a great character arc. And I mean, he starts at the beginning of the movie probably as far away from peace and family and home and as far away from himself as you could see anybody. And so it's really great to watch a character grow and, you know, forgive himself and forgive others and have and, and to be forgiven. I love seeing that in movies. I, I think it's so powerful. And this is really one of those movies that really touches your heart in a way that you you leave saying, you know what, I think I can forgive people. I think I can forgive myself. 
And at the end of the day, I mean, this is one of those stories that, again, there, there's this sense of, of, of disappointment. Uh, the premise of the film is that the, the star, uh, the country western star, Liam Page, basically leaves this poor woman at the altar to go and pursue fame and fortune. And after about an eight-year absence, comes back to that little southern hometown. And not only is the girl that he left at the altar waiting um, now grown into a very independent woman, but there's also a surprise waiting for him. That's true. <laughs> Her name is Billy. And that's what I, really I love about the title, Forever My Girl. It really, everyone goes in and thinks it's a, a, a romance between the two to get back together. But really, he falls in love with his daughter who he didn't know he had. So there's such a surprise element there that, that it, when you start to see their relationship grow, you can see his love for Josie and for Billy, and you, you actually physically watch him fall in love with his own daughter. And that's just so great, and I don't know that I've ever seen that in a movie before. You know, a, a father really becoming a father and stepping into that role. Clearly much about the plot line, the story, Forever My Girl, that is uh, very magical. But there's also a great deal of magic amongst the actors. Let's talk about some of your choices. Uh, the, the, the character role of Liam Page, played by Alex Rowe, who we have to say from the get-go, uh, going into this was not only not a country-western singer, it could not sing, did, did not play the guitar, and is not even American. He is British in his roots. What an interesting choice for the lead role and what an amazing way in which he pulls off this role. Listen, I think Alex is such a star, and I think it was one of those things where we weren't going to make the movie unless we found Alex, because I didn't know him before, but um, we saw people, and I was like, no, they can't pull off this. They can't, they can't do the Southern accent. They can't, you know, they're just, they don't have the charisma. Whatever was happening, we could not. And he walked in, by the way, with that Southern accent, so I didn't even know he was British. I literally thought maybe... He was a country star that had taken acting up. I mean, hmm. he was playing the guitar, doing something, and, I, and he doesn't even play the guitar. But I was like, I, I couldn't believe it, but he really is, is that kind of actor where he becomes the character. And he came in in boots and that T-shirt, looking about like he did in the movie. And I was like, well, that's the guy, obviously. And come to find out, when I, now that I know him so well, you know, he's not Liam Page at all. He's so humble and sweet and the nicest guy in the way. He's not cocky like that at all. But he just came in as a character, and he really became Liam, which is why you, you believe him so much in the movie. And, and the chemistry also, I think, uh, Mickey, between um, Alex and Jessica Roth, who plays uh, Josie Preston, the chemistry on screen between those two is so incredibly believable. It's so real. It really is. I mean, and, and it was on the set, too. You just They met, and it was just yeah, – that's why I was saying why we created such a fun set – they were laughing so hard in between takes and afterwards all that. And that would carry on into the thing. You can just feel it. They were just, they just were cracking each other up. And, you know, at times when they had to be serious, they were. And there was really, really true chemistry there between the two of them. And, and also between Alex and, and um, Abby, you know, the, uh, the little girl who plays Billy. I mean, that was crazy. The first time I saw them together, I was like, that, he, he could be her father. I mean, you know, I let's, really... let's, let's talk about her, uh, Mickey, because she is a remarkable young actor. Um, she plays, of course, seven-year-old Billy in the film, Abby Ryder Forston. Where did you find her? What, are, what a fascinating child, precocious at moments, lovable throughout the film. Same thing. You know, we saw a lot of little girls for that role. They were all good, but, like, it was nobody was Billy. And um, 
I knew she was on a show on HBO that I know the creator of, um, and um, um, so Mark and his brother did a show called I think it was called Togetherness. It's not on anymore, but she played a daughter there. And then I got to see some of her other stuff. I think she was in Ant-Man. And so we kept trying to get her in, but she was shooting and all that. And then she came in and met with Alex. And it was really not even an audition. It was really the two of them just talking. And when you finished, I was like, that is, she is, she's Billy. I mean, she just is Billy. She could do it. But she's not from the South. She's not in this. She just is is such a good actor. And I, I don't know how at that age... You teach someone that. I think that's a natural gift that she has. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, and as, as viewers will see when they get a chance to um, witness the film themselves, and again, they mentioned that Forever My Girl will be opening at theaters across the Bay Area on January the 19th. She, she plays the role of seven-year-old Billy, who is this mini-person who's seven years old and at moments in the film 45 years old. <laughs> if any of us know a child that has that ability, who can be so young and innocent and yet have such a tremendous grasp of the facts and to be so mature at times and the engagement between Abby and the chemistry that she has with Alex Rowe is phenomenal. It really is. I, and that's, that's probably really one of my favorite things about the movie is that I just never get to see that on film. I mean, maybe in Jerry Maguire, I saw that with Tom Cruise. I mean, every once in a while you see a movie where you start to see an adult and a child interact and it's so much fun when it's, when it's right. And this is one of those movies. We mentioned about the fact that the lead character, uh, played by Alex Rowe, Liam Page, who leaves his girl at the altar again to pursue fame and fortune as a country singer, um, there's a tremendous amount of great music inside of this film. Uh, this is going to be an amazing soundtrack. What was it like coming together with uh, these uh, these writers and performers to create all this great music for the film? Yeah, I mean, Brett and the writers were, were amazing to work with. They, um, you know, they came in and, and even before we were ready to go, we had the script and they were writing songs. They'd come in and play the songs. And, you know, you're just tapping your foot and you're listening. And you're like, well, this is exactly what um, Liam would be going through at this time. So it was really written for, the music was written for the movie. But I tell you, even without the movie, I have the soundtrack now. And Universal's doing the soundtrack and it's just coming out. I have it, and I listen to those songs all the time. They're just great songs. I mean, they're really well-written, smart country music, uh, you know, and, and I didn't even know country music that well, but I've become now a big country music fan through this process, and these songs are great. There are so many great takeaways from this film, in addition to the great country music, of course. The storyline is wonderful. Great actors throughout, as we've mentioned. For you, in terms of the, the overall production of the film and the big takeaway, um, once you saw the screening of the finished product, for you, what is the big takeaway for the viewer? You know, I think right now, more than ever, I mean, I, I think the last time I felt this was maybe um, around Thanksgiving, when I saw Wonder, I really think that the theatrical movie experience right now, for everything that's going on in the world, and and um, you know something's happening every day, and and there's, I think it's a really great movie to escape and take your whole family. I think you can go from eight to eighty, and everybody can have a great time. And I just, to me, I would love people to just drive home and say, I'm so glad I saw that movie. It was so fun, and you feel. You feel the forgiveness, you feel family, you feel the prodigal son, you feel all the moments in there, but mainly it's just a lot of fun. And I, I would love people to have that experience in theaters.
And indeed, I mean, not only does it accomplish that sense of escapism, but I think then, yeah. too, walking away with a renewed sense of faith and hope in, in the human experience and the human condition is also one of the wonderful takeaways of this new film. Forever My Girl, again, premiering at theaters across the Bay Area starting January the 19th. You can get a chance to check out the trailer if you want online by going to ForeverMyGirlTheMovie.com. That's ForeverMyGirlTheMovie.com. You can also get information about theaters that will be showing this again, opening across the Bay Area on January the 19th. We've been visiting with producer Mickey Lindell. Mickey, congratulations. It's another great film of yours. Keep up the good work. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The laundry list, all of us painfully familiar with by now, reads like a who's who of Hollywood. Harvey Weinstein, Aziz Ansari, James Franco, Kevin Spacey, Matt Lauer, Ben Vereen, Bill Cosby, Charlie Rose, Senator Al Franken, and I guess we can add to that list Judge Roy Moore, Fox News' Bill O'Reilly, President Bill Clinton, President Donald Trump. Wow. It is amazing to see what has transpired over the last many months in this arena of the topic of sexual abuse in America today. And it's one that obviously we've reached the point where the nation needs to have some serious dialogue about it that takes us beyond the simple he said, she said into real hope, real answers and real healing. Joining me is Don Scott Damon. Wife, mother of five, grandmother of nine, though I hardly believe that. She herself is a sexual abuse survivor. She is an award-winning author. She's got a couple of books out. When the Woman You Love Was Abused, which we've talked to her previously on the program about, and her latest, When a Woman Abused Was You. And, Dawn, great to have you back on the show. Well, thank you, Craig. I appreciate being on, and thank you once again for tackling such a difficult subject. Wow. What has happened here? It's almost as if uh, the, the proverbial Pandora's lid got ripped off the top of the box. Um, you know, for allegations to be made here and there, that's one thing. But this has been so pervasive, um, so widespread, mm-hmm. and reached so many levels of politics and industry and Hollywood. that I guess it has a lot of America asking the big question, What's going on here? Is this level of abuse that we are seeing and the accusations that are out there really as severe and as widespread as what's being reported on in the media? Boy, you're so, so right. It's like Pandora's box has been opened. And um, yes, I think the answer to that is yes, it is that widespread. It is at epidemic proportions. And I wonder if it's always been that way, but now we have all of these avenues of telling our story and making that known. In fact, I don't know if you saw it or not, but the person of the year for Time Magazine this year was given to the Silence Breakers. And this is a group of women who have come forward to tell their story. And boy, the momentum is going. Once one woman starts to tell her story, we have movements now like hashtag me too or hashtag times up women saying i am not going to settle for this anymore we have to get awareness out there that this is a um, abusive situation that's been going on for women and men but 
four years, and it is very, very prevalent. Is this something, in your opinion, Dawn, that is kind of, um, how should I phrase this, culturally inbred into our society because it is so widespread and so pervasive? And I ask that question because, yes, we we certainly understand that there are degrees to which this kind of abuse um, is basically powerful people in powerful positions using that position of power to their advantage. Um, and that certainly describes mm-hmm. a lot of the names on the list that I just articulated a moment ago. Exactly. But then you look at all the minor players out there. There have been so many women in the Me Too movement that weren't abused by people of position or, or necessarily notoriety, but still people of power, whether it was an uncle or an employer or whatever the case may be. Um, and then you just add to how much widespread attention you, you're seeing this receive, and you get the sense that this has got to be a an issue reflective of some failures going on very deep within the fabric of our society in America. For sure. You know, you have to wonder the culture. We have such a sexualized culture today. We have sexual bullying, sexual harassment. We have sexual identity issues. We've had... Our culture has been an incubator to produce these types of behaviors because, as a Christian, I believe we've gotten so far away from God's ideal and the beauty of sexuality that he created. It's so perverted that we can't help but have these kinds of outcomes. I think of, uh, I live here in Michigan, and Larry Nasser is the coach, the team doctor, excuse me, the team doctor for... Team USA in the Olympics and Michigan State University, he's been accused of abusing more than 140 girls, some as young as six years old, that he saw. This has gone on for years, and we're finally taking the lid off and the momentum for sure to, to now report, to tell Uh, To get that, the shame has come off women, they're feeling empowered, and the abuse survivor is no longer feeling muffled or gagged, silenced, but rather finding a lot of support and comfort in telling. With us today, pastor, best-selling author Dawn Scott Damon. Her latest book, When a Woman Abused Was You, newly published by Credo Publishers. We're talking about not just the Me Too movement, but what is going on in terms of taking the lid off of this topic in America today. We're going to take a brief time out when we come back asking two important questions. At one level, why so many? And at another level, why so surprised? We'll get to the details of the questions and the answers from Don Scott Damon as this edition of Lifeline continues. 545, let's slip over to the KFAX Traffic Center for another quick update. Michael Bennett, what's going on out there traffic-wise? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back to our conversation. Best-selling author Don Scott Damon with us. A look at When a Woman Abused Was You, newly released by Credo Publishers. We're talking about this uh, new wave of accusations that are out there, and the list is growing day by day, seemingly. And as the accusations have come forward, it's begged a couple of serious questions. Why so many? 
And why so long? I mean, look at the list here, Don. Um, Bill Cosby, more than 50 accusers. Harvey Weinstein, 84 accusers. And Dr. Nasser that you referred to before the break. More than 150 women have come forward. And I guess the question a lot of us ask is, you know, if there's one or two people, but you mean to tell me out of 150 women, nobody said, wait a minute, no, not me. How, how is it that an abuser is able to take advantage of what almost seems to be a conspiracy of silence that so many people, obviously unbeknownst to each other, but nevertheless, that so many people, you would think at least somebody would have come forward. In, and you said it, the conspiracy of silence, that is the that is the problem with power. That is the problem with intimidation. And again, the problem with shame. You know, we know statistically one in three women have been abused. And yet it's not been surprising that we haven't heard one in three stories of all of these women. The price has been too high. They, they don't want to tell their story. Um, they feel they won't be believed. There's too many stories of women who have tried to come forward and they were berated. They weren't believed. They paid a price. They lost their job. It took too long to get where they were and they didn't want to give that up. The fear, on and on it goes, that women and men, because men are have also been abused, but um, predominantly it's a situation for women, whether from childhood, they lost their voice already. I know for me, Craig, you know, my abuse started probably when I was eight or nine years old. I don't remember. But I know that in my workplace as a young adult, there was sexual harassment for sure. In fact, just flat out uh, advances. But I had already lost my voice. I hadn't told my secrets for years. Do you think I was going to talk now? Not on your life. So, yeah, women have been silenced. There is a conspiracy of silence. And the beautiful thing, though, is all it takes is one woman to come forward. And she, you know, courage breeds courage. One woman comes forward, and then the next, and the next, and pretty soon the tidal wave of these, women reporting they are finding boldness freedom they are empowered there is a movement that started but it it takes someone finding their voice and being willing to to take that risk you know there's an interesting irony here because as you suggest from your own experience uh, particularly when the the abuse begins when the victim is at a very early age it's almost as if you're being groomed or prepared yes. for this kind of abuse and the complicity yes. of silence. And, and I guess at a level that raises the other big question, the hypocrisy that we've seen, particularly out of Hollywood, uh, the mm-hmm. sense of shock and dismay. And when these stories first started to emerge about these names, not only did you find out that, well, within the Hollywood circles, it was widely known about Harvey Weinstein, for example. But, you know, to the greater right. degree, and to my point about grooming, Hasn't our culture and society been groomed for this for the longest time? In other words, we see over-sexualization, objectification of women, uh, demeaning of God's ideal for sexuality 
all across the spectrum, television, film, magazines, music, advertising, we are inundated by this. I suppose at the end of the day, we should look at this, and this is not meant to make excuses, but we should look at this and say, well, we've been grooming this culture for this kind of environment for two, three generations now, probably at least going back to the 1960s. So this is the this is the end result. This is the outcome, and we act like we're all surprised about it. Right? Why should we be shocked and surprised? Uh, Galatians six says, you know, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. What you sow, you shall reap. And we have planted these seeds, and now we're reaping a harvest. And you're right, we're acting surprised and we're acting shocked. And we shouldn't be. We've we've opened the door to the, really it's a vomitous flood of evil that we have decided that it's cool, it's, it's acceptable, I'm okay, you're okay, love everybody. Um, your sexual identity can be whatever you want it to be. It's right, you're right, it's hypocrisy. And we are so desensitized at the same time now we're, we, um, and we should be, we're acting irate over this, and we should be. Are, are we finally getting our conscience back? Are we, have we found our blush once again? Can we say, this is wrong, and we have to stand up and give voice to saying that at some point in time, we have to turn the tide of this culture and start making changes now. I, I, I fear I fear it's already rampant. I, I talked to a woman today whose daughter is in the seventh grade and they're sending sextings, uh, photos of themselves naked to boys in school that they like. This is just mating now. This is just how we date. This is just, it used to be you'd write a letter and say, do you like me, yes or no? Check this box. Now it's, here's my picture and I'm naked, do you like me? And parents are acting shocked that this is going on, and yet isn't this what we're teaching our children? Isn't this what society, isn't this what Hollywood is telling us is cool and acceptable and free? And that we're surprised that we're getting these kinds of results. It's sad. We, we've almost come full circle from that sense of, uh, you know, the first sin in the garden and that uh, that uh, debased approach uh, because we violated God's terms of, of engagement. We violated the agreement with God from the very get-go. And with Christ on the cross, we were able to recapture the ability to once again um, – reap the benefits of innocence through Christ's work on the cross, and yet here we continue to reach mm-hmm. back to those sins of, of the garden and act in that debased fashion. Uh, the only difference is mm-hmm. today we act that way and we call it entertainment or we call it advertising or we call it music. Mm-hmm. And, you know, be, be, I guess there's really two big issues at play here then. There's the issue of, of women coming forward, women dealing with the self-blame, the shame, um, dealing with the fear coming out of the shadows in the sense uh, where many of the power plays of fear of a loss of a career or relationship have, have been used as tools against them, and, and cases of men too, to be fair. 
Uh, but then the bigger, broader discussion that I think we as society need to have, and that is, you know, we've, we've kind of done this to ourselves. We made this behavior acceptable in a sense. Now we're, as you suggested a moment ago, Dawn, reaping what we have sown. Now it's a matter of can we possibly undo this? Can we, can we stuff all the feathers back in this pillow? Mm-hmm. Boy, you know what? There's hope. Because God says, if my people who are called by my name will turn from their wicked ways, if they'll repent, I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. Yes, revival can sweep this nation. There's always hope. But Christians need to sober up, fall on their knees, pray, raise the level of awareness, purity, keep the conversation going, and, you know, be separate from the world, not, not in a way that's um, legalistic and, oh, I can't love you. No, God, Jesus wants us out loving people, lost, hurting, broken, wounded people, but at the same time, recognizing that we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And this really is a bigger, broader issue, too, isn't it, Don, of the fact that, you know, that the old adage, wounded people wound other people. And that isn't excuse-making for the perpetrators by any means, but to say that there is the bigger picture here, that the person who is engaging in the abuse was they themselves at a fashion also abused. Now, maybe not abused in the like fashion. In some cases, it may be simply the abuse of the exposure to pornography and and the like that over time um, in that steady diet has has warped their 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 moral compass, their sense of right and wrong, has erased the boundaries. And so, in a mm-hmm. sense, that's that's abuse too, just in a different fashion, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. That's very well said because. Hurt people do hurt people, and not every person who's been abused will go on and be an abuser, but many of them do, or their sexual identity has been warped, has been has been um, wounded. They don't they don't um, know which side they land on or who they are, and um, they're experimenting and they're trying. But again, in the harassment arena. This is an act of power, not just sexuality, but it's a, it's a point of overpowering, intimidating, bullying, taking what I want to serve my needs. And so you're you're. It's very well said. It's broken people breaking people. And at the end of the day, you know, the the big thing that we would look here and some of the examples that we've cited today is to to to, to intentionally break something, and that is break the cycle of abuse. Um, break the cycle of violence um, that has taken place. Anybody would look at the list of, of, of uh, the accusers of uh, any of the names that we've mentioned would say this cycle needs to be broken. And I think also there needs to be voice given to breaking a bigger cycle, and that is the cycle that helps to lay the foundation for all of this. And that's what's happening at the broader degree of what has passed for so long of a steady diet of entertainment. And, uh, as you know, I went over that laundry list a moment ago, so it doesn't bear repeating, except to say that we need to stop the cycle there, too, and say that that depicting this as okay or as acceptable or as normal in media, television, film, magazines, music, advertising at all. We need to stop or break that cycle as well. 
this is a conversation that will go on in the coming days and weeks and months. And we appreciate Don Scott Damon for being with us to uh, to um, be addressing portion of this conversation. Again, I'll mention that her latest book, When a Woman Abused Was You, is newly published and available through Credo Publishers. You can get details, too, about uh, Dawn's work and her involvement in ministry online at Dawn, D-A-W-N, Dawn Scott Damon dot com. That's Dawn Scott Damon dot com. And Dawn, we appreciate so much the time and uh, sharing your story with us today. 602, we're a bit late. Let's get caught up on some traffic here. We've got headline news for you, too. But first, traffic wise, the latest Michael Bennett from the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael, what's going on out there? Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.